You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 123 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm excited, Valerie. That's excited. Why are you well, excited? I'm kind of excited and a bit scatty as well. Well, I've, mm. I'm, I'm getting all my gear together and I'm heading off to many, many book week engagements this week. So I'm in the process of getting myself sorted out. Last week I was editing... Uh, editing, editing, editing. And this week I'm off to talk to kids about books. So, you know, it's been a crazy couple of weeks really, but it's going to be fabulous. Wow. That's mm-hmm. going to be, yeah, you're going to have a busy week. I am going to have a busy week. And, you know, I've got uh, author friends who have been basically book weeking for the last month. It's it's like it's become this extended thing, which I think is so fantastic because, you know, it's any chance to get authors in schools I think is a brilliant thing. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm getting myself all sorted out to get on the road and go and do that. So very excited, looking forward to it. Wow. Well, you're ramping up and I'm ramping down. Why? What are you doing? I don't know. Is that, is that the right term? Can you ramping ramp down? down? I don't yeah. know if you can. Winding, winding down. Winding. Yeah. You're winding. You're well, ramping and you're winding. Yeah. <laughs> As you know, we've now almost come to the end of Crime and Thriller Month and it's been huge. It because, has. yeah, apart from this podcast, I've been doing the pop-up podcast called Murder and Mayhem. For mm. those of you who are interested in crime and thriller writing, just mm. search for Murder and Mayhem in iTunes. And um, it's been shooting up the charts. It's been very exciting. And uh, so what we're doing is we're talking to an interesting author today who kind of started writing books, not really thinking that they're going to be thrillers, but but has definitely been put in the thriller category or the thriller genre because, of, as, we, as we know, it's very important to for bookshops to know where to categorize you mm-hmm. so that they can put you in the right spot and give you the best chance for sales. So it's kind of like a good segue out of Crime and Thriller Month. Mm-hmm. And um yeah, it's been exciting because lots of people have been downloading the podcast and downloading the ebook, the free ebook on uh, called A Month of Murder and Mayhem, which you can get for free even though you might be listening to this in the future. And you can find it at murdercourse.com. So there you go. That is exciting. And what does winding down actually look like for you, Valerie? Because I suspect <laughs> it probably looks quite similar to my ramping up. <laughs> <laughs> It usually involves watching some kind of television. Ah, uh, yes. yes, I do like to have a little bit of a a break where I do something mindless for a little while. But oh, I know this is going to be a bit daggy. But um, you <laughs> may <laughs> recall, Duval, no. <laughs> Never. I am obsessed with the musical Hamilton. So not only will I be listening to Hamilton, I will be reading my new book on Hamilton, which recently (laughs) arrived in the post. 
Fantastic. So that will be my reward. And will there be banuffy pie in your future? That's the question I need to know because we discussed it last week and you were working hard yes. about to do some banuffy pie action and I'm just wondering if the banuffy pie has actually materialised in your life yet. Would I you have, like to keep track yeah, of your banuffy pie? I know. I haven't quite got there oh. yet. But um, another person who is inquiring about or who's talking about banoffee pie is we want to give a shout out to Michelle Baraclough, who left us a lovely review on iTunes. Mm. And Michelle has said, Dear Alison, she's called it the One Stop Writer's Shop. And she says, Dear Alison and Valerie, thanks for the shout out in that particular week's podcast, especially the lovely cheer for finishing the draft of my first novel. Absolutely. We're so good at cheering, aren't yes, we? Yes, very good at cheering. <laughs> so this is another shout-out, Michelle, because it's like, you know, two this for the Michelle price Mom. of one. Yeah. Uh, absolutely made my day. As one of the millions of writers sitting alone at their desks around the world, your podcast has been a godsend, motivating, inspiring, and keeping me company on the journey. If a question pops into my head regarding structure or editing or publication or author platform or Banoffee Pie, oh, there you go. <laughs> I know Alan Val will have the answer. The search function on your So You Want to Be a Writer website is brilliant for this too, pointing me in the direction of the podcast I need. Thanks, gals. Love your work, Michelle Baraclough. Oh, well, there you go. Thanks so much, go. Michelle. Yes, thank you, Michelle. Alan Val, we sound like an ice cream brand, yeah. don't we, really? <laughs> yeah. we, should, we should think about this. We should think about like this. Like writers like ice cream. Maybe we could do a little bit of, ah, you know, yeah. what do you call it, sideline marketing of some exactly. kind? Exactly. Yeah, hmm. we'll do a spin-off. Um, so if you also want to use the search function on uh, at the show notes, just go to soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au and, uh, yeah, use the search function there. <laughs> there you go. But let's good move clear on. instructions, Val. Very yes, good. very good clear instructions. But yes, if you do have thirty seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it certainly helps us in the rankings. Now, shall we move on to the world of uh, writing and publishing and blogging this week? Let's. Well, big news in the world of publishing and, well, writing and blogging, I guess, because this started off as a blog, Gorka.com, which started 14 years ago, is oh, wow. shutting down. In fact, by the time this podcast is released, it's it will have shut down. So um, Gorka themselves have put out a um, announcement saying that the decision to close Gorka comes days after Univision successfully bid 135 million for Gorka Media's six other websites. And I guess this is the, the important part. Three months after the Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel revealed his clandestine legal campaign against the company. Mm. Now, I think this is particularly interesting because people are saying, oh, you know, print is dead and there's, they're, they're saying that the industry is evolving. Whereas, well, Gorka.com obviously is not a print publication. It is an online publication. And it goes to show that these can uh, shut down as well, but you know, not because it is, um, uh, not because there's declining ad revenues or a lack of eyeballs or anything like that. It seems that Gorka.com, you know, has made its name about writing gossip. Mm. And I think that if you spend your time writing gossip and writing stories like, uh, I kid you not. Um, 
they, they wrote a story about Peter, Peter Thiel, who is a Silicon Valley uh, billionaire mm. and, uh, you know, investor and very, very heavily involved in the tech space. Um, they wrote a uh, blog post that was headlined, Peter Thiel is totally gay people. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, do we care? Do you really need to spend um, your time writing those sorts of um, uh, those sorts of articles? They also recently um, uh, posted a story about Hulk Hogan. You know, Hulk Hogan, the mm-hmm. rock and roll wrestling guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do, yes. Um, because it says here that Peter Thiel is supporting. Hulk Hogan, who sued Gawker Media and the editor Nick Denton and former Gawker editor-in-chief after Gawker posted video excerpts depicting Hogan having sex with the wife of his ex-best friend. It's like, really? That's Mm. just leave that, you know? Well, it's interesting. I mean, it's always sad to see anything. Like 14 years is a long time and, you know, obviously the staff on that site have, you know, whatever you might think of the content, have probably worked extremely hard because it is an extremely well-known site. I mean, that's the other thing we need to to look at here. Um, I think it's it's very sad when anything like that, you know, comes to an end. All those people have to find their jobs and stuff like that. Um, But I think your point about the fact that, you know, just because you're in the digital space doesn't mean you're safe is probably um, a lesson worth... Uh, taking on board as well. Yes, particularly if you're going to write about risky subjects and mm. open yourself to a lawsuit, then you've got to be prepared for a lawsuit. And if mm. a lawsuit comes because it's going to be funded by uh, someone with deep pockets, you might need to close down. Mm. Yeah. Okay. There you go. So that's the news of the week. But let's move on to something quite different. Now, this is a post from The Right Life called How to Write a Memoir About a Painful Experience. Now, I thought this is interesting because people often do want to write memoirs because they've gone through something harrowing or they've gone through something significant and, you know, it's, it's probably in their definition painful. And it's it's it can be hard because – I, I, you know, you both you and I have interviewed a lot of memoirists mm. and it is a hard thing for them because often they are reliving that experience. And if it was particularly traumatic, uh, it can be easy to get lost in the trauma and um, not tell the story in a way – you might tell the story in a way that's that's useful for yourself to get it out there and, and vent, but it might not be a publishable story, mm. if you know what I mean. Mm. So this uh, post has some interesting tips on what you can do. And one of the things that I thought was particularly interesting was the one point that said, show all sides of the story. Mm. Now, of course, a memoir is just your point of view. However, if you are writing, say, your first draft of your memoir, I think you need to almost treat it as a therapeutic experience Mm. and just get it out there, write whatever it is you want, do not censor yourself, but understand that's not going to be the final draft if you want for publication, you know what I mean? Do it for yourself, of course. But if you ultimately want it for publication, start off with the, with the, you're just getting it out there. Yeah. But then try, I know it's going to be really hard, but to serve your reader properly and for your reader actually to empathize with you and to care, they do need to see other sides of the story. So while you might never know what it was like to see your experience from the story of your mother or your father or your whoever is is involved in your situation, at least 
attempt to or if you can even ask them. So I think that that is something that people often forget in a memoir and it becomes very navel-gazing. Yeah, that's very true. And look, I I totally agree with you on the sense that I think that – a lot of uh, what you write in a memoir is going to be in your first draft and never ever make it to the light of day. Yeah. You know, once the actually, if you got if you want to be published, because I think um, the number one point in this uh, article is be a protagonist worth reading, and so that's the kind of thing. Like you've got to think about the fact that what you're writing here is a, is a story, and it's it's your story. It's a mm. memoir, obviously, and it's something terrible that's happened to you. But from the reader's perspective it's still a story and so the reader needs to follow your story like a story so you need to be a protagonist that is worth reading you need Mm. to show all sides of yourself you can't just be the only person in the book that is perfect in every way (laughs) for starters Um, but you also need to craft a narrative out of your story and I think this is where a lot of people who want to write a memoir um, possibly, you know, might go wrong in their first draft because they start at the beginning. You know, I was born on, mm. you know, blah, blah, on a rainy, horrible, blurry day back in 1971, that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, that's possibly not the best place to start for your for the story, for the reader. Um, and I think that the finding the starting point for a memoir I think would have to be one of the most difficult tasks yes. of writing a memoir. Um, so I think the way to do that is probably to start on that blurry rainy, horrible day back in 1971, write the whole thing out in chronological order and then think about where the starting point for the story actually is. Um, But you are crafting a narrative and you need to make yourself a character in that in that narrative. Um, but at the same time, and the other point that they make here is very important. You have to be honest, you know, you've got to give, you've got to give the actual factual version of yes. what happened um you know you're going to tell it in an artful way and you're going to use the best you know um the best possible language you can and all that sort of stuff but it has to be grounded in fact and it's got to be as honest as you can make it so you can't invent scenes for dramatic effect no of course yeah. and this comes from the right life and i like one of the things that they say if you want people to read and enjoy your memoir for the amazing story it is then you have to avoid writing a one-sided therapy session yeah that's exactly right but you know what if you want to write a one-sided therapy session i say go for that get that story out because yep. you will probably find that it helps you so much does your story ever need to be published maybe not but you might know that once you've actually written it down I think, you know, mm. writing is such an incredibly powerful way of making oh. sense of, of what's going on in your head. Yeah. And in fact, I think that that's absolutely right. It's so powerful that sometimes people, once they think that they need to write a book, they think they need to write a memoir, but once they actually do that one-sided therapy session, they feel relief and they realise they don't need to put this out in the public space. They, it, it, the, the, the act of writing has done what it needed to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's they right. just needed to tell themselves essentially. They needed to get it out there. Because mm. sometimes you just got to remove it from your body physically and that's an excellent way of, of making sense of it, I think. Yeah, for sure. Now, we, you also have a link, don't I do, you? Al? I do. So this is actually this is actually a story, uh, an article from 2010. Um, it p- appeared on 
write it sideways. Oh, and yes. um, I'd found it while I was trawling around doing whatever I was doing. Mm. Um, and, of course, the, the thing that got me in was the headline for this story, the number one reason you'll never finish writing your novel. And I thought, righto, let's go and have a look at what that might be because I'm always <laughs> entertained by these things. And um, what do you think it is, Val? Because I'm sharing it today because I think it actually is uh, an incredibly insightful and truthful article. What do you think the number one reason that you'll never um, finish writing your novel might be? Because I put this up on our Facebook page on the, the Australia's Writers Australian Writers Centre Facebook page and I got so many suggestions because people didn't actually click through to read the article. They just right. gave me. So I got procrastination and I got writer's block and I got, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they would have been the first two that would have come into my head as well. Okay. Yeah, right. they were the first two that came into my head. <laughs> okay. Well, the uh, number one reason you'll never finish writing your novel, and this is my number one reason, this is what I always say to people, you aren't actually writing. <laughs> you're not actually doing it. You're yes. talking about it yes. or you're going back to chapter one every five minutes to correct the typos or yes. to make the first line obsessive or you're wondering whether the scene that you've done, you know, 15 pages ago is actually correct and should you change it? Are yep. you constantly interrupting your writing to conduct research? Um, are you criticising yourself constantly by stopping to reread passages and going, oh, I'm so crap, it's so terrible, I'll never make it? You're not writing. Mm. So many people that I talk to are just sort of like talking about writing. I'm, I went to a ball recently. I believe we discussed it. Yes. And um, I met a very nice woman at the ball and we were discussing, you know, what we did. And I said, I was a writer. And she said to me, oh, I'm a writer too. Deep in my soul, I'm a writer. I said, great. <laughs> what are you writing? Well, nothing. Oh, I don't my have, goodness. I don't have time to write. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, my goodness. Well, yep. I said, you do realise that the only way you're ever actually going to write anything is to sit down and write it, don't you? She's like, oh, yes, I'll get to it. You know, I will, I will. But, um, yeah. So if you're not actually writing, you are never going to get your novel finished. That's That's all I have to say. And I think also, like with many things in life or any project that you undertake, whether it's writing a novel or building an Ikea, you know, (laughs) um, uh, piece of furniture, is that you get started quite easily, you know. You can get started. But once you get to that final 20%, in fact, that's the hardest slog of all, just the finishing. It's not the 20% for me. If anyone followed my writer book with Al hashtag, which is – finished. Um, I'm not sure if we talked about that last week, but I'm actually finished. So write a book with Al is over for the time being. I have written my 52,000 words or whatever it was. You actually followed my progress. And I think it would be quite interesting to chart and maybe I need to do this Mm. because I was putting, you know, I was putting my word count online, you know, every day, all the days that I wrote and the days that I didn't, I put zeros in when I didn't, et cetera. And um, the interesting thing was, I think if you looked at it, you would probably find me going 1,000 words, 2,000 words, 1,000 words, 2,000 words, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to about the 25,000 word mark. Right. And then it's 300 words. Yes. So 250 you get 60%. Yeah, just that halfway point because I, I got – because you, as we've discussed, I'm, I'm not a plotter and mm. I got to that point in the story where I was just felt like my characters were walking around in circles. That's mm. what they felt like they were doing, walking around in circles just constantly. And I remember having this feeling when I wrote the Mapmaker Chronicles book too because I had put my hero, Quinn, in a hole 
and mm. he just felt like he was in that hole for it felt like about <laughs> 75 chapters. It wasn't, of mm. course, and by the time I'd gone back and edited the story, it all made perfect sense. Mm. But when I was actually in the trenches of writing this thing, it was like, oh, God, he's still in the hole. What's going on? <laughs> and in this particular book, they just felt like they were working in circles. And so every time mm. I sort of went to write, I'm like, oh, God, we're still walking in circles. And I'd write 250 words and think this is hard and walk away. So I think, it, yeah, everybody has their different points of yes. where it gets difficult. Um, but the point, I guess, that I was making with Write a Book with Al is that if you show up every day and do that yep. 250 words through that middle, eventually you do get to a point where you're going, oh, I know where I am. Bang, a thousand words, bang, a thousand words. So, um, you And know, it's guess- such a great idea to have Write a Book with Al, to have that accountability Oh yeah, of other was, people who are writing yeah. the book without. I got a lot of pressure from writing book without. Yeah, <laughs> I said to John, my husband, at the end, I just said, I just, I'm so glad that's over. I felt like I had this massive balloon of a story that just kind of like, you know, finally removed itself from my body, and it just took forever. It's like surgery. Mm. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so if you're not writing. Yes. Uh, you won't finish your novel. So try and just get the bones of your story down and push forward and that's probably um, going to actually get you to the end. Absolutely. Do whatever you need to do to push forward. It's going to that's be different right. for everyone. That's you know, right. For some it's going to be Banoffee Pie. Some it's <coughs> going to be an accountability group. Yep. So, yeah, definitely. Whatever you need. Whatever you All need. Right. Just keep writing and stop talking. <laughs> stop All talking. right. Our giveaway for this week is this is a cool uh, book. It's a new book called Rebellious Daughters, True Stories from Australia's Finest Female Writers. Oh, that Hmm. sounds good. And it's edited by Maria Katsonis and Lee Kaufman, and it includes stories from Michelle Law, Jane Caro, Jamila Rizvi, Leah Kaminsky, Sylvia Kwan, Susan Windham, a whole heap of uh, wonderful Australian writers, Hmm. and it's called, yeah, Rebellious Daughters. Now, if you would like to win a copy of Rebellious Daughters, then go to writercentre.com.au slash win, and entries close Monday the 12th of September. So make sure you get in there. So writercenter.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers Centre, a world leader in writing courses. A popular five-week online course in copywriting essentials will teach you how to turn your writing skills into a weapon of mass persuasion. Learn the seven steps to creating compelling copy, how to take a creative brief, the secrets of SEO and much more so you can begin earning good money immediately. Learn online from wherever you are and get your own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash essentials. Are you ready for the word of the week, Al? I'm ready, Val. I'm ready. Hit me with it. Do you use this much? Okay. It's polemical. Polemical. That's P-O-L-E. M-I-C-A-L. Polemical. Um, do I use it much? No. I can't Me actually either. recall the last time I used it. No. <laughs> it's a good one though, isn't it? It is a good one, yes. Because you it do see it one. like in in articles and things like that. Yes. So I got this word um, from a book called 500 Words You Should Know. <laughs> 
500 so, words you should know. Polemical. Excellent. And they have said that, okay, polemical. This is what the book says. Controversial, particularly when concerned with a belief or doctrine. A blogger who expressed opinions about world affairs rather than writing about personal matters could be described as polemical and a piece of his or her writing might be a polemic. Polemics are very often against something like a heartfelt polemic against the nationalisation of railways or against the government's (laughs) healthcare policy. So um, to earn the description of a polemic, as opposed to, say, a diatribe, the writing or speech needs to be passionate but also well-reasoned and persuasive. Okay. There you go. Polemical. I always think of it – it's a funny thing. I just – you know, it's a, the kind – I just always think of poles apart, you know, when, yes. I, when I see it and I think of North Me Pole too. versus South Pole so you know that it's, you know, somebody who's taking probably the complete opposite position on anything to what you are. Yes, it does seem like that word polarizing, mm. doesn't it? Yeah, like yeah, in fact, yeah. it's it's a it is a different word. So polemic, mm. polemical to all of the people who are using the word of the week in a blog post. Make sure you ping us on social media so that we can uh, see how you've used it. Now, let's move on to our interview, our writer in residence this week. Who have you got for us? It is Louise Doughty. Now, I was in my favourite little cafe bookshop thing Mm -hmm. and I came across this book and it's called Black Water by Louise Doughty and I picked it up because admittedly because it had a striking cover you you know you can google it and we'll put an image in the show notes but then I um had a look and I realized that uh, Louise is the author of eight novels Mm -hmm. and her previous book Apple Tree Yard was um, at won a whole ton of awards and is now in a four-part BBC One adaptation uh, with Emily Watson in the lead role. Mm. So, and also, this book was set in uh, in a fair chunk of this book is set in Bali, which is you know a place that's very familiar to mm. to Australians, and it's set a, in various times, but particularly around the time of the 1965 coup, as in C O U P, mm. not coup like. Valerie. Mm. And um <laughs> right, thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> I thought that was particularly interesting also because I studied that at school. So that drew me to buy the book and I thought, oh well, I have to now interview the author. And fortunately, Louise was um even though Louise is based in the UK, she uh was in Sydney. And so oh. I had a chat with Louise and uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks so much for joining us today, Louise. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. Now, for readers who haven't read your new book yet, Black Water, tell us um, what it's about. Well, Black Water is about a man called John Harper. And as the novel opens, he's in his 50s. He's in a hut uh, in rural Bali in Indonesia, halfway up a hillside. It's the middle of the night. The rain's on the roof. There's geckos and squirrels scampering around outside. And as the novel opens, we find him lying awake in the middle of the night. And he's mortally afraid. He thinks that men with machetes are going to come and kill him. 
as the novel progresses, we find out that actually what he's really afraid of is not something that's going to happen. What he's really afraid of is something that he himself has done. It's about the ghosts of his past. That's what's really going to come and get him. And you find out more about that as the novel progresses. What a great premise. Now, what, how did this idea form in your head? Well, I first got the idea in 2012 when I was a guest at the Writers and Readers Festival in Ubud on Bali, and I'd never been to Indonesia before. I did what I always do when I go to a new country. I started reading up about its history, its politics, its culture, and that's when I came across this extraordinary collision which anyone who's ever been to Bali, I think, will recognize with the extraordinary physical beauty of the landscape, the rice fields, the green hills, and this incredibly troubled political history uh, across Indonesia, but in particular, uh, in particular on Java and Bali, and the massacres of 1965, the rise of Suharto military dictatorship for many decades, and then the fall of Suharto in 1998. So I got an idea for a novel that would bracket those events. As the novel opens, it's 1998, and Harper is in his 50s. And then there's a big flashback sequence in the middle of the book, where we go back back to his birth on the island of Sulawesi in 1942 underneath Japanese occupation, uh, his upbringing in the Netherlands and in America, and then how he returned to Indonesia uh, in 1965, when he's a young man, he's in his early 20s, he's done his military service in the Netherlands, and he's working for a company of what we would nowadays call uh, risk analysis or security consultants. It's, a, it's basically a private mercenary firm. And he gets involved in the massacres then and does something very terrible that we find out about during the course of the book. And so it's set in Indonesia and also in the Netherlands and various places, but a lot of the setting is to do with Indonesia. Uh, you said that you um, uh, became intrigued when you went there in 2012. Now, presumably when you went there in 2012 for the festival, it was just for a short period of time. Did you subsequently go back and spend time there and research all of these things that are in your book? Yes, I did. I did two further visits. I went back to Bali and I also did a trip to Jakarta. Uh, they were both very short visits. I was foolish enough to set a novel in a long-haul destination when I still had school-aged children. It was really not smart. Uh, so there were flying visits. There was also a lot of research online, a lot of research from journalistic and historical and sociological sources. Um, it, was, it was a tough one to research. I think it's very difficult to start off with, when you set a novel in a foreign country, uh, I'm sure there's all sorts of details that I've got wrong. I did have it read by Indonesian friends, um, by an Indonesian academic based in The Hague, and I tried to get as much of the detail right as I can. I think you can never guarantee that as a novelist. I think that it would have been very difficult for me to have written this novel from the point of view of an Indonesian person. I think that mm. you really have to live in a country for many, many years before you can do that. So it, to me, was very vital that Harper is mixed race. Mm. He's half Indonesian, half Dutch. And it's a novel about an outsider. Um, he's a man, he's a global citizen, really. He's grown up all over the world. And when he goes into Indonesia, his firm sends him in because he's mixed race. And I think they naively assume that, you know, he'll pick up the language quickly. He can pass as a local. <laughs> 
But there's a lot in the novel about disguise. Uh, when he wanted to join a demonstration on the street, he wears a, a sarong and sandals and ties a bandana around his head. When he wants to go into a Western hotel, he takes off the sarong, puts on loose trousers, a shirt and a Panama hat and says ciao to the doorman, who assumes he's Italian. So he's really a kind of master of disguise. He's a chameleon character. And the more you read, I think, into the book, you more you more you realize how appropriate that is for the theme. I, I know that you said that you prob- you couldn't have written from the point of view of an Indonesian without having lived there for you know a long time, which of course makes perfect sense. But you have written from the point of view of a male who is really quite who is half Indonesian and half Dutch. So it's not really it's it's still pretty foreign. How did you get into John Harper's life and mindset and brain? Oh, you're so right. I really don't like to make my life easy, do I? (laughs) Uh, It's very odd. I think I felt the need to make an imaginative leap when I was writing Blackwater. Uh, My previous two novels had been from very much from female points of view, first person. And I think I was really ready to make that leap into the head of somebody very different from myself. The interesting thing about writing from a male point of view is that I I do take as my starting point the fact that we are all the same under the skin, uh, regardless of gender, race, nationality, sexual preference, and so on, that there is a basic common humanity that we all share. And to me, that's a very important starting point. But the issue about writing from a male point of view was in many ways more about language than it was about feeling or consciousness. I had to think very carefully about whether his phraseology would be the same Mm -hmm. as a woman in that situation. I mean, to give you an example, early in the book, I think it's chapter two, there's a scene where he goes into Ubud and in the first draft I had him thinking to himself that he was going to go into Ubud to do a bit of shopping and then I thought now let's think about that phrase because what that phrase implies is shopping as a leisure activity as a pastime something you might do to while away the hours and I do think that without wishing to generalize too much that's generally a female perspective on shopping the idea that it's something you'll get to do with a friend um, I'm not sure that most men certainly not a man of Harper's generation he's born in the 1940s would think that way doing a bit of shopping. I think it was an alien phrase. So I changed that to something more specific, pick up a thing or two. He would go to town thinking, I'm going to do this and this. In actual fact, the activity is the same. He is definitely going into town to while away the hours. He's a lonely man and he's looking to pass the time. So the activity wasn't different, but the language Mm. that he would use to describe it to himself was different it's such a subtle thing isn't it it really is but it's very important to get that kind of thing right I mean equally this is a man who's never been to Britain his English his learned English is firstly um, in school in the Netherlands and then in America most of his um, formative years are spent in America Mm. so he would use not only American vocabulary but an American idiom with a kind of North European education layered on top. Mm. I had to be very careful where I would go to use a phrase which was British English idiom and think, no, hang on a minute, he he wouldn't have even heard that phrase. That's not his upbringing. Mm -mm. 
Can you give us some idea of timeline? So, so let's say you were there visiting at the festival at in two thousand and twelve. When can you give us some key milestones of when you decided, okay, I'm actually going to write a book set here now? When you know, did it? How long did it take to write that first draft? And just some of those key points. Sure. Yes, it was rather traumatic that timeline. In fact, because I wrote. <laughs> I wrote uh, two or 3,000 words, most of the first chapter, very quickly. I think I may have even started it on that first visit to Ubud because what came to me first was that very strong image right on the opening page of a man lying awake in a hut, mortally afraid. And I think when it first came, I thought it might have even just been a short story. I just had a very strong um, picture in my head. I didn't know who the man was. I knew that he was afraid of something he himself had done, but I didn't know what that was. And so the first few thousand words were written almost immediately. And there was then a real hiatus. Um, I went back home, obviously, real life took over. I was still finishing the editing on Apple Tree Yard, the previous novel. I think I'd done most of the copy editing, but there was still the proofreading to do. And then there was all the run-up to publication of Apple Tree Yard going on. And, you know, I was writing features for newspapers. I was doing the whole publicity round. So there was a very long gap, I think, of around eight or nine months before I actually got back to the book. And I remember, I remember looking at my timetable and sort of panicking a bit, thinking, hang on, you know, I've let a bit too much time go past. And writing a very, very hurried first draft of around 70,000 words in about six or seven months. And that for me was very quick and probably too quick. It was a very rough first draft. It was a bit chaotic. The scenes set in Jakarta were particularly thin because at that point I hadn't been to Jakarta. And I did submit that first draft to my publisher. And, you know, we knew, I knew then that it needed a lot of work. And we sat down and we agreed a timetable for some really hefty rewrites. And so on top of that, there was then a period of between six and eight months of solid rewrites, uh, wow. including a visit to Jakarta to do research, adding another 20 or 30,000 words. That's unusual for me. I mean, normally I cut on the rewrite. Normally the first draft is very fully realized and it's a question of honing it down. But this book, the first draft had been too hurried and I had to add material. I had to change, um, change a tone and focus a bit. I have to say, to me, it was a real lesson against writing the first draft too quickly because the rewrites were hell. And normally <laughs> normally my rewrites are pretty light. Normally my first draft, the draft I deliver, is pretty much a finished work. But this time it was different and I, I learned my lesson. So why did you write it so quickly? Well, I had a deadline. I'd had a book deal and Apple Tree Yard had been a huge success in the UK. It had been in the bestseller list. Mm. Um, it was optioned for TV. It's in post-production now. Mm. And there was no doubt I, I felt under a bit of pressure to follow up with the next novel as quickly as possible. And ideally, my publisher would have liked Blackwater two years after the hardback of Apple Tree Yard. And I tried to hit that deadline. And it was a mistake. Um, I think I should have just said I need another year. I think a, a three year gap between novels is what suits me. That suits my rhythm of writing. Um, and I tried to get it in with a two year gap. And I, I learned my lesson. You know, you, you can't rush these things, 
particularly not with a book as complex as Blackwater. Mm. It might be possible with a simpler narrative. Yes, and one that requires so much research as yes, well. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, so you wrote it in the first, that that six or in that hurried six or seven month block, but initially, when you first started writing that first you know, um, few scenes in when you were in Ubud, you didn't have an idea what was going to happen. It was really more of a scene or, as you say, a short story. It, did it you, really was, yeah. How, at what point did you just let it flow out of you and or did you plan it before you went hell for leather, you know what I mean? Yeah, I really let it flow. I mean, I had a very funny conversation with my agent because once I realized that there was sort of meat in this idea, that there was more to it than a short story, I then, I think at that stage, still thought it was going to be a very short novel. It was all going to take place inside the hut, inside Harper's head. And there weren't going to be these huge chunks set. I mean, there's a big chunk set in California during the civil rights movement in the 1950s, another chunk set in the Netherlands. And I hadn't... I didn't intend that um, early on. And I remember saying to my agent, I said to him, oh, look, you know, I, I think I can do this one fairly quickly. This is going to be, I thought it was going to be one of those short, perfectly formed novellas, you know, those little sort of 150 page things. I said, this is going to be my short novel. And he said, Louise, you say that every time. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yes. Every single book, he said, you say to me, this is going to be my short, simple, beautifully formed one. It never is. So... I think the minute you start doing research, particularly into a subject as vast as mine, I mean, we are talking about a novel as a sort of global canvas spanning oh, 30 years in a man's life. I, I, I don't know what made me think it was going to be a short book. I think the minute you start taking on that level of material, obviously it's going to expand and it is over 100,000 words now. So just take me back to when did you know you wanted to write books? Oh, very, very early on, although um, I was distracted for a few years in my adolescence. I think I thought I was going to be a great actress of the kind of Glenda Jackson school in my adolescence. But very early on, I was always obsessed with stories. I always loved inventing stories as homework uh, at school. I read voraciously as a child. I was a bit of a kind of sort of weirdo child. I'd lie to my mother that I was going to play with the kids on the housing estate where I grew up, and I'd sort of sneak out of the house with a, a book in the, um, in the pocket of my anorak and sort of go and hide in a den on some waste ground at the back of um, the housing estate. And... Um, I started, I did actually write a first novel. When I was 11, I wrote a book uh, about a group of talking horses. Um, I don't know if you remember Watership Down. That was oh, the yes. big hit of children's fiction in the 1970s, the talking rabbits. Yes. So anthropomorphizing small animals was very big back then. So I, I invented this novel about a group of horses wandering across the Midwestern plain, and probably also influenced by the John Wayne movies that my father used to watch on black and white TV. TV, um, every afternoon at the weekend and it was a very odd choice for a girl who had never left the East Midlands and never sat on a horse in Hull. Yeah. Um, and I remember writing this book so my horses they not only talked to each other I think they wore hats there were definitely hats in there and I illustrated it and I wanted it to be a hardback so I made cardboard covers on it. oh my <laughs> goodness I, I believe I still have it somewhere oh, <laughs> I that's probably so sort of dig it out um 
then in adolescence, I wanted to be an actress. As I say, I went off to university and I did a degree in English literature. And it was really only towards the end of that that I started to think, you know, what what did I actually want to spend my time doing? You know, what activity made me happy? And it was when I asked myself that question that I, I knew it was writing. I knew that was the thing that made me happiest of all. And so your previous book won the – so Apple Tree Yard, which was so successful, is so successful, won numerous awards uh, and it was the National Book Award Thriller of the Year. Uh, this book, Blackwater, also has, has that element of that unfolding that, that um, where you need to get your pacing just right so that the reader is left with that level of stress in a sense. That's my feeling anyway. Oh, thank you. I should probably say I was only shortlisted. I didn't win. But, you know, in my heart of hearts, I feel it was mine. So yes. let's just say, let's just pretend for the purposes of this interview. Yeah, I why not? Why yeah. not? I've, um, actually, I've been shortlisted and longlisted for almost every award in the UK. I've never actually won anything. But, hey, I'm not bitter. No, it's, um, it, it, it's great. Even to have a shortlisting tag is great fun. It's funny, you know, this whole thriller tag, because I certainly never set out to write a thriller. I mean, as far as I was concerned, Apple Tree yard was a feminist indictment of criminal justice you know it's a book about morality and the way in which women's uh, morality is always judged through the prism of their sexual morality and I thought in many ways it was quite an angry almost a campaigning book but my publisher in the UK Faber um, did a really brilliant job of spotting the fact that it had a narrative that gripped that it had a courtroom drama at the end and they published it with a kind of thrillerish cover and it worked I have to say extremely well I mean it, it brought me to a huge audience who had never read me before um, when it came to Blackwater again I mean I never consciously sit down and say now I'm going to be thrilling I mean I, I think if I did that I wouldn't be able to write a word I just started with this single image of this man in a hut this character John Harper but I suppose my sensibility tends to be quite a narrative-driven sensibility. I think that I, my characters always have secrets, usually dark secrets. There are always things that I want to find out about them that get revealed during the course of the novel. And I suppose that's that's what makes a book readable to the reader. If you yourself as a novelist are discovering a character and revealing them, um, then that's what intrigues a reader too. I think if you're not thrilled by your main character, then it's unlikely the reader's going to be. Um, but I don't consciously set out to be uh, to write thrillers. I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, both those books are character studies as much as anything else. I... When you talk about your characters and you say that you are also getting to know your characters, um, do you literally get to know them as you're writing or do you – because some authors have entire dossiers on their characters. They have entire backstories. They write – you know, they collect the kinds of – they collect photos of the kinds of places they would live in and they know their characters <laughs> intimately, whereas other authors do get to know their characters as they unfold on the page. Where do you sit? Well, I'm very much in the latter group. Um, I get to know my character gradually over the course of writing the book. And I suppose I set out really to answer questions. I, I put the character in the situation in the early stage of the book with Blackwater 
it's Harper in his hut, very afraid. With Appletreeard, it's Yvonne on the witness stand at the Old Bailey, giving evidence at her own trial. And all I knew about her was she was about to be caught out in a very damaging lie. With Whatever You Love, um, my sixth novel, that opens with the police officers coming to a woman's door to tell her that her child has been killed in a hit-and-run accident. Um, and I think once I've, I've got that set up, once I've got the situation, it's then my job to go and discover the character definitely through writing I do build up a dossier gradually and often there does come a point sometimes around two-thirds of the way through my first draft where I realize I'm getting a bit confused because <laughs> I've been I've been carrying the facts of this character's life around in my head and not writing it down and that's the point at which I will stop quite a long way into the book and go, right, okay, and get out a bit of paper and write, you know, when were they born, the date of their birth, you know, their education, all those kind of basic CV type details. Because I've realized that I've not anchored that character development in reality. And quite often when you do that, there are lots of questions arise that you hadn't thought of. I mean, an obvious one for me, once I decided that Harper was born in 1942, it's it's the middle of the Second World War. And it's that when Indonesia is being occupied by the Japanese, you know, where was he born? Why was he, why was he there? Who were his parents? Um, so uh, to me, it's, it's a fairly organic process. I'm not as organized as some writers. I don't sit down and do huge amounts of flow charts or lists. I let it unfold in a rather messy way and then end up having to do flow charts and the lists when I'm sort of quite a long way into the book. So when you are writing, when you're doing that first draft in particular, what's your typical day like? Do you have a routine that you stick to? Do you try to achieve a certain number of words each day or week or anything like that? Well, again, I'm not as organized as I'd like to be about that. I definitely find now, and it gets more so the older I get, and my best hours are morning, um, not very early. I'm not a particularly early riser, but I generally start once I've got the kids out of the house to school around nine o'clock in the morning. And my best hours are definitely those first two or three hours of the day, the first coffee of the day. That's always a very important moment. And quite often, I'll take my laptop and I'll go out to cafes. I find it very, very difficult to get first draft writing done at home. I can do rewrites, I can do admin, emails to the agent and so on. But that first draft concentrated writing, I really need to leave the domestic arena. Even though I have the house to myself now, my partner's at work, the kids are older, I find it very hard to concentrate. If I, you know, if I go and make myself a coffee, I start thinking about, should I unload the dishwasher while the kettle boils or should I take <laughs> the chicken out of the freezer? And then that's just a different way of thinking. It's my domestic head. So quite often I'm very, very familiar with the cafes of North London. I could write you quite a detailed guide. I know who gives you a free biscuit and who has to <laughs> toilets. I'm just saying. Um, and so luckily I live close to a high street. So I'll take the laptop out. I'll go and sit down. If I'm lucky, if I'm really in the swing of a book, then in that sort of two or three hour period, I can easily write a couple of thousand words, just yeah. letting it flow. I should say, though, my first drafts tend to be rather badly written. I just let it all flood out. I don't stop myself at that stage to think intently about the quality of the prose. 
Um, I just know, I just think first draft, just get it on the page, sort out the mess later. And I, I do really envy writers. I have a couple of writer friends who do sort of 200 words a day, mm. but the words are perfect. They will, they never go back to those sentences. And I do sometimes wish I could do it that way, but I'm just not that kind of writer. I need to get the first draft out there on the page, whatever state it's in, and then take it from there. So can we go back to your first novel? Can you remember your break, you know, when how you – because so many people would love to be in a position where you are one day where you've written many, many books, but many listeners are at that first stage. Can you describe your first break and how you got it, whether that was through an agent or a publisher or whatever? Yes, certainly. I I did do an MA in creative writing at the University of East Anglia um, after my English degree. But funnily enough, my break didn't come through that. I I moved to London after the course and I was just doing temp jobs, secretarial work, bar work, you know, the real writer in the garret thing, um, living in a sort of rented room that was basically a squat in southeast London with mould on the walls and paying a sort of peppercorn rent. And my break came actually through two things, which were both competitions. And I don't know to what extent you have them in Australia, but in the UK, there are a certain number of competitions for unpublished writers. And some of those, the ones that have been running for many years, are very reputable. And if you get even a runner-up prize in one of those, it's a really good calling card for literary agents. And I got my first agent through one of those competitions. It was a short story prize called the In St. James Awards. Um, doesn't exist anymore, sadly. But again, I was runner-up. I got third prize. And that was a nationwide competition. It had thousands of entries. It was open to everybody. Um, but I remember that the money I got for third prize was the equivalent to five months of what I was earning as a part-time secretary. It seemed oh, like a wow. huge amount of money. And in the same year, I had a radio play, an unproduced radio play that also got a runner-up prize um, in a competition uh, run by a magazine at home, the Radio Times. And those two things, the, the second one led to my play being produced on Radio 3. So I suddenly became a professional playwright and I went on to have four other plays produced. And the first prize of the short story competition, one of the administrators was in the process of setting up his own literary agency and he took me on. Wow. And um, it wasn't all plain sailing from there. I was working on a novel that was not very good. It was actually the second novel I'd written. And he sent it out to, I think, three or four publishers, and they all turned it down. And it came back with sort of the rejections that sort of said, "Mm, not for us, but we'd like to see what she does next kind of thing. And I knew that that book wasn't good enough. And in fact, I'm very grateful that those first two novels were not published. I'd be very embarrassed if they were in print now. And I was working on what was then for me my third novel in my late 20s. And um, the agent rang up and he said, oh, you know, what are you doing? I haven't you know, heard from you in a year or so. Um, let's have lunch and let's meet up. And I said, well, I've done about 100 pages of a new idea. So I met him for lunch and I gave him the 100 pages. This is way before you know, email, mobile phones, any of that. And I remember getting the bus back home to this flat share where I was living in South London. And as I got in the door, um, the phone was ringing and I picked it up and it was the agent who was at the railway station and he had started reading those pages while he was waiting for his train. And he called me and he said, "Um, I'm 
going home tomorrow, I'm photocopying this and sending it out to publishers. This is the book that's going to get you published. And I said, what do you mean? I've only, I've only written 100 pages. He said, no, trust me, this is ready. It's going out. Um, and he was right. I got a two book deal. Um, wow. Spent those first 100 pages. Fantastic. I guess if you're going to ask me to anticipate your next question, <laughs> what was different about that book as opposed to the other two? I think partly it was that I had just matured as a person. I mean, I was in my late 20s then. I think I was 29 when that happened. I know I was 31 by the time it was published. Um, and I think I'd matured. But I think also throughout my 20s, I had been honing my craft. I had written two complete books that were no good. I'd had lots of false starts where I'd started novels and abandoned them. I'd written numerous short stories. I'd started doing book reviews, um, trying a bit of journalism. I really spent the whole of my 20s gradually, gradually getting better as a writer. And I, I remember speaking to a publisher who said that in his experience, it's quite common for somebody who has a kind of basic talent to need around seven or eight years of serious working at your writing before something falls into place. And I think that's about right. I think seven or eight years of trying mm. and reading a lot and writing as much as you can before something clicks into place. I think if you think a doctor or a dentist or a vet takes how, how long to train, seven years, a yeah. lawyer, I think writers need that same training period. You need to teach yourself to be a writer or do a course or be mentored. And during that time, of course, you don't get the formal recognition that a, a doctor or a lawyer does. But I think that is what most people need. You need to train yourself. You need to read and you need to often write a huge amount of not very good stuff. Mm. As you have to sort of get all those bad sentences out of your system before you write something that can be published. That's great yeah. advice. So what's next for you? What are you working on now? Uh, you know, apart from obviously doing promotion for Blackwater what's yeah. in your head it's very much about promotion for Blackwater so I'm I'm over here in Australia on tour um I won't be back home until the end of August um I will be starting a new novel in September I do have an idea in my head that um I'm not really talking about yet it's very early stages I have done about seven or eight thousand words um this one is I is going to be my short perfectly formed novel I swear <laughs> it really really is I, I so long to write one of those beautiful novellas um yeah I've got an idea in my head it's a return in some ways to an easier landscape for me it's back to the UK and it's a female first person narrative um I loved doing Blackwater I'm very glad I did it and I'm proud of it but I feel the need to do something that's more within the scope of what I usually write, something that, to be frank, is easier to write after a difficult book. I think that's very common with writers. I think you quite often write a novel as a reaction against the difficulties of the previous one. So I'm going to try and make my life a little bit easier. Well, despite being a difficult book and, you know, you say that it was challenging, but it certainly doesn't look challenging on the page. It's uh, it's um, the sense of place is very real, which is why I asked you those questions about how much time you spent there, because I had assumed that you had spent quite a lot of time there um, because the descriptions are 
you know, just uh, they're they're they're, um, they're incredibly authentic. So um, <laughs> you obviously you obviously succeeded on that front. Anyway, Blackwater, fantastic book, and thank you so much for your time today, Louise. Oh, thank you. Okay, there you go. There's Louise. I, I still find it so fascinating as a writer how you can just go somewhere. You know, she describes how, you know, she was lying in bed and it was obviously so noisy because people always think these, mm. you know, country places are so quiet, but they're not at all. And mm. particularly, you know, I think Ubud in the monsoon. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she she's lying there in bed at night listening to the frogs or whatever and yep. she suddenly has this idea for a for a um for a book and and then you know proceeds to set an entire novel there. I know. Inspiration works in very strange ways. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, but it can also you know take you around the world because you, then you have an excuse to visit places that you've set your book right. Well, technically, if yeah. you don't have an entourage, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, there's there's that issue as well. All right. So our web pick for the week is what is, is. it now? Oh, well, actually, we've got a few because okay. we have got the fabulous Natasha Lester, who, of course, Yay. is an Australian Writer Centre presenter and, and quite amazing. She um, was on at the Romance Writers Festival uh, recently, just in the last couple of weeks. Yes. She did a keynote speech there and she was apparently, by all accounts, very fabulous. So there yes. you go. Um, so uh, her eight best writing tools for authors. So I'm going to put the link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it surprises me not one iota that her number one is Scrivener because, of course, she is our Queen of Scrivener yep. and um, she runs the course for the Australian Writers' Centre, the on-demand course, was two hours to Scrivener power, which yes. I love. Yes. Um, but she also had a couple of others in there. So she talks about, you know, some of the ones we've discussed before, like Evernote, um, but she understanding desk, which of course you are you still doing that? Yeah, standing desk thing. Okay, yeah, yeah cool. I have. Yeah, you can well, get it from that IKEA. That's a, one of her best writing tools for authors. But she um, also uses the Moleskine app, which I thought was quite interesting, which is like a notebook app, but it's like a Moleskine journal. Yep. And she actually that's what she uses um, out and about for note taking. So she's not putting it on her phone. She's or she is, but it's sort of she can color code and name notebooks and all sorts of things. Have you ever used it before I haven't used one so I don't know um, I did, what it's like but she loves it I did once upon a time download the Moleskine app but I haven't stuck with that one I too use Scrivener on long form projects only mm. and um, I have used Evernote uh, a lot but in just recently I have found it's syncing because one of the benefits of Evernote is that it syncs across all devices mm. so that you have your notes no matter what you're looking at but uh, recently I've had some issues with syncing which have mm been very frustrating for me. Um, so I have been using OneNote a lot, mm. which uh, is Mac and PC, um, although if you use the PC version, there are way more um, features in OneNote. And I'm, you know, like Molesky, like the Moleskine app, I suppose you can colour code. You can also handwrite if you have a, uh, a tablet or a device that enables you to do inking or um, – handwriting like the Microsoft Surface Mm -hmm. and you can record conversations, you can put pictures, you can embed video. So it's really good for a research point of view. But, um, yeah, you just need to get – Try the kind of app that works best for you, I suppose. Well, she also uses a LiveScribe pen, which I think is quite yes. interesting. Because have you? We, did we discuss that? Have you used? I mean, you know, you've pretty much tried everything, Val. So yes. you're always my go-to girl for this stuff. Um, uh, have, have you 
because she, uh, Natasha, um, got it for Christmas last yes. year and loves it. You know, it works like a normal pen, but also converts your handwriting to digital 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 editable text so she writes the notes down and then she connects the pen to her computer and yes. it downloads the notes for her so it just saves you that business of having to transcribe stuff um so yeah have you have you tried the livescribe pen i have tried the livescribe pen and i have one and i did use it and you know love it for a period but now that i use one note with the with my Microsoft Surface, it it negates the need for a LiveScribe mm. pen because basically I can just write onto the tablet, and it can it will then convert my writing to text. Mm. And okay. I can even do things like just in OneNote. This I, I just think OneNote's fantastic. Like you can even just if you say adding up, you can just put one plus you, you know three, and it'll go it, equal. It will tell you it equals four, mm. or you know Ooh. not that I would do that. <laughs> Of course, you would do far complex calculations, but you know I don't really use it for calculations. I do use it for writing by hand. And um, if you're say at the Romance Writers Conference and you were listening to Natasha Lester and you were there, you can just you can press record and it mm. will record Natasha's voice at the conference. And it and you can take notes on your um, uh, you know on your on what through OneNote um, and. At the end of the day, when you review your notes and you go, oh, I wonder what Natasha was saying at that point, you can press play at that particular point and it will replay what Natasha was saying at that exact point that you were writing your notes. Wow. See, that's pretty impressive, really, it's isn't it? It's pretty impressive. Technology these days is astounding, really. So much better to be a uni student now. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. Interesting. Um, yes. And the other thing I, I think is quite interesting for authors in particular is that, that um, Natasha uses Pinterest a lot. and She, she does uses it not only um, as a way to drive traffic to her blog. She has quite a big following on Pinterest and I, yeah. I, I know that she does actually receive quite a lot of traffic off that um, platform. But she uses it as a storehouse. Um, so she will, you know, put together uh, save articles and images and things that inspire her books because, of course, she writes historical fiction. So she's often got you know, she's got boards for dresses and, you know, if there's mm. something her character might wear, she puts it on a Pinterest board and she never has to then, you know, hunt around the internet looking for that picture again if yes. she wants to use it for in- inspiration. So um, there's different. there are different ways to use Pinterest and I think it's, they're definitely worth exploring from a research perspective. I think it's an incredibly handy uh, platform. I think I need to introduce Natasha to OneNote because all of those things that she does, she can kind of do in one spot. Mm, okay. Yeah. Well, you, maybe you can have a chat with her about that. You can take her aside and talk to Aunty Val. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, let's move on then to our platform building tip for the week. Oh yeah. Okay. So this week, um, I've just I've got another interesting link for you, and it's on a website called Write to Done, which is a great. Uh, really great resource for writers, lots and lots of um, terrific articles on that website, writetodone.com. But this particular article is two complete content marketing examples for fiction and nonfiction authors. Now, we're often, um, when people talk to us about, they're often asking us, oh, I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to do this. I don't know what to put in my newsletter. I don't know what to write on my blog. Um, So the website uh, has given us two the two case studies basically of a of a fiction novel a crime novel by Lisa I think it's Unger or Unger I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it mm-hmm. um her novel 
that came out recently called Ink and Bone. Mm. And then there's also a non-fiction example as well, a complete oh, case yeah. study of exactly how these authors went about, you know, using content marketing, which is blog posts and social media and all of those sorts of things, um, into using those into a, into a, a strategy uh, t- towards the launch of their books. And I think um, if you are, you know, building your author platform or you are you have a launch coming up or, you, you know, you've got something going on with yourself at the moment, you should have a look at this and just just to give you some ideas of what other people are actually doing with their um, with their content marketing. And I think the interesting thing is that uh, with this particular article, they break it down in the sense that, you know, these authors, they have a goal. Yeah. They know their audience. Um, you know, they know what they're going to do to reach that particular audience. Um, in the case of Lisa Unger or Unger, there's a bribe, you know, um, mm. to build her audience and accomplish the goal that she wants, which is a large group of people to launch her book towards and to get book sales. Mm. Um, she has a she has a bribe, so she uh, presents it on her website and it's a, a hello bar, which is like a bar at the top which just says, you know, here I am. Um, but she also has an exit pop-up for new visitors mm. um, and she offers an insider's guide to her books and a chance to win books every month automatically, which is, you know, a great strategy, um, which then gets people to sign up for her newsletter. And as we've discussed in the past, a newsletter is an incredibly valuable asset for an author. So, you know, it's worth thinking about how you are going to get people to sign up for your newsletter. Um, They also go through, you know, step-by-step the content that people use, that these authors are using. So what she puts on Facebook, what she puts on Twitter, how she writes it, um, et cetera, et cetera. So if you are, um, you know, starting out or you've you've got a book coming up or, or wherever you're at with your you know author platform building experience definitely worth having a look at this um at this article because it is a step-by-step case study and case yep. studies of what other people are doing are incredibly valuable you don't have to do it exactly the same mm. but there might be something in that for you, you can go oh i'm going to try my version of that Yes, mm. and I do think that's actually so few authors who are doing it well that it's good to come across one who is and mm. she's definitely, you know, got it going in the right direction for sure. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, this and other awesome platform-building tips are in the course that Alison has created called How to Build Your Author Platform, and you can find out more about that at writerscentercomau slash platform. Now... We're almost at the end of our episode. Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Well, I'll be talking a lot. Oh, yes, you will be. (laughs) And then I'll come home and I will lie down for a while, I think. That's pretty much what my plan is for the week ahead. Yeah. Um, What about you? What are you going to be doing? Um, what will I be doing? Well, when you come back from your talking, I will be going to do some talking. Oh, where are you talking? Well, I'll be going to the um, Squibby Conference, the Society for Children's Book Illustrators and Writers. Yes. And what are you talking about? uh, Building your author brand and building your author platform. Yeah. So that should be fun, meeting some awesome children's book writers and illustrators. So, yes. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. And uh, where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontate.com. A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you will find me on Instagram and Facebook at Alison Tate Writer. 
Awesome. And you, Val, where do we find you? <laughs> ValerieKoo.com. That's um, – Oh, I don't usually mention my personal website. Um, but, yeah, if you want to have <laughs> well, let's, a look. Let's bring it out. Let's yeah. blink you, into the sunlight. If you want to have a look, it's ValerieKoo.com, K-H-O-O. But you'll find me on social media at, uh, at ValerieKoo on Twitter and Instagram. I've gone a bit, you know, cold on Instagram. I mean, on Snapchat where oh. where I am, the Valerie Koo, since Instagram started its stories. Mm. So, yeah. I think, I think that's been the case in lots of areas from some of the articles yeah. I've been seeing. Yeah, there's been a definite, um, a, a definite sort of I'm going to put my – uh, energies into this instead. Yeah. Mm, so yeah, we'll see how I go. I might, I may or may not keep it up. Um, but uh, yeah, find me uh, online and do ping us on social media. We'd love to hear from you, we and would. we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.